When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Yesterday, January 22nd, was Eddie Van Halen's birthday. The legendary guitarist would have been 67 years old, which in itself is unbelievable, as Eddie is one of the most timeless people in rock and roll. Everyone I know thinks of Eddie with his tape-striped guitar, shirtless and long-haired, and sporting a huge smile that, well, made you smile. Steve Folsom, our editor extraordinaire, thought it would be cool and appropriate to put together a special little take on Eddie from our talks with Greg Renoff, who authored what I think is the essential book on Van Halen, along with Greg recounting producer Ted Templeman's thoughts on the band from his book on Ted. Renoff's Van Halen Rising was episode two, if you can believe that, and our chat with Greg about Ted Templeman, a platinum producer's life in music, was episode 27, if you'd like to go back and explore our early catalog for a listen. So here's a few more minutes on Van Halen with Greg Renoff. Enjoy! And dance the night away, Eddie. Today we're welcoming back author Greg Renoff, who we interviewed about his excellent book, Van Halen Rising. Today we'll be speaking with him about his brand new book, Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music. Welcome back, Greg. Hey, thanks for having me. Congratulations on your new book. It's a great read, very enjoyable, and covers music that almost everybody has a connection to. So the full title is followed by the credit Ted Templeman as told to Greg Renoff. And then your afterword was really interesting in detailing this process. Can you explain how this worked? Yeah. When I wrote Van Halen Rising, at the, basically the tail end of the research phase, I was able to find a way to get in contact with Ted Templeman. And Ted doesn't have a website. He's a pretty private person. And so it's not easy to find a way to reach him. But I was able to reach Ted and I did an interview for the book. And he was very enthusiastic about talking about Van Halen. And about a month before the book came out, Van Halen Rising, this would have been in 2015, he had heard me on a podcast I did that was sort of a pre-book podcast, just talking generally about the project. And he said, oh, I was wondering what happened with the book, and I'm glad it's going to come out. And we were talking, and he was you know, interested in talking more to me about Van Halen. And at some point after that, a friend of mine who uh, was kind of mentoring me through this book writing process, this person who I had really counted on for some good advice, said to me, he said, uh, I said, oh, Ted, you know, I talked to Ted. So, oh, he said, uh, did, you, did you think about inviting him to the book signing in Pasadena? And I said, uh, no. Uh, why, like, why would I do that? And he was like, well, why wouldn't you do that? And, uh, okay. And so uh, he basically gave me the courage to do that. And uh, Ted said yes. He came down to Vroman's Books in Pasadena and sat with me and signed books. And he answered questions. And it was a really 
incredible moment for me as an author to have someone who was so involved in the making of Van Halen records and involved with their career say, yeah, this book was good enough that I'm happy to sit here with this guy and talk about Van Halen. And in the weeks that followed, I pitched the idea to writing a book with Ted. <laughs> he said to me, I don't want people to think I wrote the book. <laughs> I think in his way, some of his love letter to the artist that he worked with, who even if he didn't always get along with everyone he worked with, he's appreciative, got a chance to work with these amazing talents. And so for him, it was predicated on the idea that it was going to be focused on the records and the artists and that second that he, it would be understood that, you know, it was, you know, I was the guy who was kind of putting it together, that it wasn't sort of a life project for Ted to sort of be able to sure that he set the record straight or anything like that. It was never like that, because actually it was all my idea. To say the truth, it was, it was all my idea. But it must have been interesting because like with the Van Halen book, if our listeners don't know and they haven't heard that, first of all, read Greg's book and then listen to our podcast. But, you know, that starts so early on and ends right when the band gets popular. So um, you know, I'm just guessing you had to do a lot of detective work in that role. And then here you're just kind of not the filter or the conduit, but Ted's telling the story to you. Right. The interesting thing was that I think when I <laughs> took on the project, I sort of thought it would be easier to write than Van Halen Rising. Not that I wasn't going to put a lot of effort into it or I wasn't going to try to get everything lined up and very um, engaging for the reader and well detailed and well researched. But I think if you're dealing with one person's story rather than with Van Halen Rising, I was trying to boil 200 plus people's experiences into one book, plus do newspaper and magazine research and flyers and all these other things. It was is at least as difficult and maybe more difficult, depending on how I feel from moment to moment, because, you know, with the Van Halen book, there were a lot of things I had to educate myself on, for example, in the geography of Los Angeles, which, you know, to me, as a person who grew up in New Jersey and had been to LA a couple of times, LA was kind of LA. I knew there was Pasadena. I knew there was going to be downtown LA. I knew there was like Santa Barbara. I kind of knew, but to sort of have all these little towns that those guys played in. And then along with that, having to educate myself about the musical genealogy of the Van Halen brothers and Roth, sort of the stuff they listened to and kind of fill all in those gaps for me and listening to Yesterday, the interviews I did and kind of piecing together what Eddie I could to do that. But for this, you know, there were whole areas of Ted's career where I was completely, completely unknown to me. You know, it was a big, heavy lift. It was a lot of me walking Everyone away from an interview with Ted, uh, after spending the day with him in California or off the phone or an email and having to go through, oh, okay, now well, I need to figure out what the Jerry Mulligan Quartet Steve did with Chet Baker. So these people who were stars in the 50s that Ted was a big fan of, I could familiarize myself with all this stuff. This continued up through the catalog of a lot of his bigger acts, like even the Doobie Brothers, you know, I knew the hits and I had heard some of the records probably, but sort of having to go through it track by track because oftentimes Ted would point to some track on the second side of the third song that maybe seemed like filler to somebody, but to Ted, if there was some important breakthrough for those guys musically or something, he did something with the production and he wanted to focus on that. So there was a lot of areas where I had to go through and fill in the gaps, and which again sort of made the book in some ways more challenging than Van Halen book to write. Enjoy. seventy-seven dance was ground zero for what would become one of Ted's greatest acts. And he goes, I think it was to Pasadena to see Van Halen in a small club, and he immediately responds to Eddie Van Halen's talent. In fact, I think he compares him to Charlie Parker, but he's a bit unsure of David Lee Roth. Yeah, that's the, uh, that's the interesting thing about hearing this all from Ted. You know, when Ted first saw Van Halen in, in the nightclub, he was just absolutely blown away by Eddie Van Halen's talent. He just thought he was a transcendent musician, and that's interesting to hear him talk about that 
as you mentioned, Charlie Parker, you know he's putting it into context of guys who are Ted Zeros when he was a kid, and mm-hmm. they were not rock guys. These were jazz guys. Mm-hmm. These were guys who were the absolute virtuosos of the, uh, the 50s and 60s when it came to jazz. So when Ted saw Ed Van Halen and thought, my gosh, this guy is the guitar player of the future, it really did shape Ted's perception of the band. In other words, that Ted was said when he first saw them that first night or first two nights, he was just totally locked in on Ed. I mean, he liked the band. He liked the songs. He was like, he said it was like almost like falling in love with a girl. Like, you know, you just sort of like locked in on this one thing. Like he ends up signing the band to Warner Brothers. And this is 1977. And they do a demo in Sunset Sound in Hollywood. And when Ted listens back to the demo, he was really concerned because he didn't think Roth necessarily had the the chops to cut it as a, a singer. You know, he told me, and I think we talked about this in the book, is there some of the stuff that Dave sang in the studio and those demo sessions just wasn't acceptable. I mean, it just wasn't okay. I mean, it just wasn't going to be something you could put on a record. You know, from Ted's point of view, part of it was was kind of self-inflicted wounds. He talked a lot about vocal melody. Like we listened to some of the demos together. And he said, you know, but the problem is that he can't sing the melody he wrote. And that's a problem. You, you have to know as a singer, oh, this is not something I can pull off. Ted mulled over trying to think about what would happen if he basically pulled Roth out of the group. And, but in the end, Ted was really impressed with Roth's intellect, his sense of humor, his whole approach to fronting the band, and kind of saw that Roth did do some things that were certainly distinctive, for example, the way he did his train whistle sound with his voice, the, the screams, and Roth had a vocal sound that was was distinctive, and Ted really emphasized that to me over and over again. It's not just about having a perfect voice. He, he said to me, and I'm not sure we put this in the book or not, but he said, you go to 20 Broadway shows over 20 nights in New York, and listen, and you would hear the most amazing voices. They'd hit all the notes, they'd be great, but he said, they're not distinctive in most cases. It's not something that's going to perk up on the radio because it sounds too generic. It's not a knock on them as performers or singers. You said in the you know the context of a lot of things, it's perfect. But on the radio, you want something that's going to kind of catch your ear. Go, oh, that sounds unusual. I don't know this. This is cool. This is different. This is this is weird. When he heard Roth saying, you know, he said there, there was that distinctiveness there and that discussion about the whole Roth Sammy Hagar thing. Ted said in the book that uh, he would have made the biggest mistake in rock history if he had tried to put Sammy in the group. The band wouldn't have made it as big without Dave. Definitely, definitely. And, you know, the label, they put him on the road. I think they opened for the likes of Black Sabbath on that tour, and the album is just a huge smash. But soon enough, of course, as you mentioned, that back to the basement at David Lee Roth's father's house to work on the follow-up album. And that basement has its own bit of a legend, doesn't it? I know that in the book, Ted is certainly a fan. Yeah, it was uh, it was really interesting when Ted talked about that because he said at some point in the midst of with working with Van Halen in the late 70s, he kind of realized it was such a, a weird active, I don't know, fate or something like that, that Ted had a house in Pasadena. The Van Halen brothers lived 10 minutes from Ted and 10 minutes from David Lee Roth. They all basically lived very close together. And he said it was just sort of a thing where we could all be there so fast to a rehearsal. He said, I was just finished dinner and drive to Roth's house and we go in the basement and it'd be like being on the moon. Yeah. I mean, I think the other thing to think about in that context is that Ted really emphasized to me how well rehearsed those guys were. And that's why the albums typically only took a couple, three weeks to do was that they had done so many hours in the basement working on the songs, woodshedding them, rearranging them, thinking about things. And so when they went in the studio, it could be first or second take because they were so well rehearsed. In other words, it sounds spontaneous, but it's very rehearsed, but it's spontaneous because <laughs> those guys can play in their sleep. Right, you know, it's right. just like, it's just right, we can, let's do it right now. And it's going to be just dead on right. So he was a big fan of that basement. And the whole routine they worked up together to sort of yeah, get off the road, rehearse, figure out the songs, go in the studio, and those guys would go on the road again. 
Yeah, I think a lot of people might be surprised at, at how cooperative and efficient Van Halen was at that point, according to Ted. You know, it's funny, a lot of people think uh, the opening cover on that record, You're No Good, was Ted's idea because Linda Ronstadt had just recently had a huge hit with it, but it wasn't his idea, was it? No, he was really, uh, it was interesting. That was one of the, the more uh, interesting conversations I had with him about the covers because sometimes I would say things to him like, oh, you know, idea because that's what you know Wikipedia said. I had you know I had never had a conversation with Ted Temple about this before or anybody, and he was yeah he would be very um, adamant about that to sort of say well no I'll tell you the dancer on the street was the one that was his idea yeah he was he was in favor of doing cover songs for example that you're no good Dave is the one who came up with that idea to do that song and so for something like you really got me or Happy Trails those were songs that the band had in their repertoire and brought to the table and Ted chose for an album rather than those guys coming to Ted and Ted saying, oh yeah, here's what's going to happen. We're going to do all these cover songs. You know, for Ted, it was sort of him embracing the songs that they had already done, but also trying to help them, to be honest with you, find a way to uh, chart success. Thought, let's do You Really Got Me. You guys do it really well. I heard it played live. Ted heard it the night he saw those guys in in Hollywood playing or the Starwood playing, and uh, he um, wanted to incorporate that you're no good was another song though that the band quote unquote kind of brought to ted rather than ted sort of bringing it to the band yeah and you mentioned he did have the philosophy of if you do a cover tune you've already got the audience halfway there and if you kill it you really kill it yeah and i think the other thing too to think about is that obviously a band like van halen could write and that was part of their their calling card was the great writing of eddie van halen on the flip side of that Ted was coming out of a, a 60s context where you know, everyone from, you know, Frank Sinatra to Harper's Bazaar to Andy Williams, they did other people's music. And I understand that there are different types of artists, but that was kind of the norm. You know, if it's a great song, well, you know what? Andy Williams should do um, The Impossible Dream. He didn't write The Impossible Dream, but Andy Williams should do it because it's a great song. Yeah. And, you know, at this point in time, they do Dance the Night Away, which is a feel-good tune, and you know it's a platinum album again for the band, but something different from them. And then they write Everybody Wants Some that ends up on Women and Children First, and that record marks you know, kind of the beginning of Eddie's fascination with keyboards and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, kind of to Ted's chagrin, he, he preferred the guitar, but that drastically changed Van Halen's sound. That was another thing that Ted really wanted to emphasize and really wanted to, I think, emphasize in print was that, you know, Ted had always been okay with ed playing keyboards on records you know jump of course is that where we're going here that's a very different you know really different sound than what came before you mentioned so ted was not originally a big fan of jump perhaps van halen's biggest song ever right yeah i think that was actually one of the harder parts for me to write in the book in conversation with ted because there was some nuance there that i wanted to try to get across which was that when he first heard the keyboard idea for Jump, he wasn't really enthused. He didn't think that the sort of what he considered to be the synthesizer-based material that Ed was working on was going to fit within the context of Van Halen. Ed had built his own recording studio, 5150, in his backyard with the help of Don Landy. And so the album was being, which was 1984, was being recorded in Ed's backyard. And Alex, Don Landy, the engineer, and Ed stayed up one night and they basically re-recorded Jump. And so went from kind of the, the initial demo idea, which was just sort of Ed tinkering on his keyboard, playing it to like a little drum machine thing, to a full-blown Alex play drums, and, and Ed played the keyboards and sort of built out this whole basic track, the keyboard track and the drum track. And when Ted heard that, he was like, damn, this is actually really good. I really think this is good. But the thing was, and here there's that nuance where I, I don't want people to lose it, is that even though he thought it was cool, he didn't think it would necessarily fit within the context of Van Halen. He was worried 
that it was going to be such a detour from what those guys were usually doing that he was afraid it was going to just not fit. Like he just didn't want something to kind of come out and people to go, I can't accept this as Van Halen. Maybe as a producer, some producers, he said, I wasn't going to do that because Ed felt so passionately about this one song. I could have said, we're not doing it. There's no, you know, we're not doing it. And could have said, no way. I said, you know, I didn't say that. I said, let's, let's work on it. And right. they worked on it and they kind of built it out. Um, Ted gives a lot of credit to Dave for coming up with the, the jump idea and the, the whole vocal melody. And as Ted stressed to me many, many times, uh, a riff and chords doesn't make a song. Right. You got to have a vocal, you got to have a melody. You got to have that other part filled in there to have a pop song. Once it came together, you know, I just said, this is, this is actually an incredibly cool thing. But again, Ted's apprehension was he was afraid that it wasn't going to be embraced by the public, the Van Halen listening public. At the end of the chapter, Ted is obviously fully willing to concede that he had that one wrong and that Ed was dead on right. I think wanting to give credit to Ed for seeing his vision through, I think Ted really understands that Ed had progressed to a place where his creative focus on what it meant to be a musician in the studio had changed, where he was more interested in sort of composing, basically moving towards wanting to produce his own music and saw his vision through and... You know, Ted has that very funny line in the book where he says that, uh, you know, one of the things I said to Ed that actually may have irked him was that it sounds like something you'd, you'd hear in a stadium, meaning the, uh, a baseball stadium, meaning the demo, mm -hmm. the very early, sounded like, you know, kind of like the organ music right. at a ballpark. Right, right. Uh, Ted says later on, of course, you know, I, you can't turn to a single sporting event in America without hearing jump exactly. played at some point. It's like, you know, it's like, so it was, I was, you know, I was right about that, but I was wrong again. So. It was definitely an interesting kind of lifting of the curtain there to hear see the push and pull there and can understand as a producer as you're trying to steer an artist one way. But on the other hand, the artist, it's their art and they're feeling right. so invested in this thing. And you have to kind of find that way forward. And that's why, obviously, Ted found a way to, to make it work, even if it was a bumpy road. Well, you know, that's the point I think that really comes across throughout the entire book is how supportive he is of the artists and, and pushes them, you know, perhaps to try things harder if it's not his first take. You know, I think one good example is, is the band, as Van Halen starts to splinter for a number of reasons, you know, David Lee Roth drifts out and Ted uh, works on Crazy from the Heat, which is a one of a kind little EP. That's so uh, something, too, that was really, for me, sitting with him and talking with him and it's sort of like a 180 from what you had heard because you know ted had never really come out and talked about this stuff before you know he had done some interviews over the years but it was never you know no one's gonna was gonna sit down and say ted templeman tell us about the van Halen breakup other than just sort of a sentence or two in rolling stone or something he didn't really see the crazy from the heat ep as being much more as a fun diversion to sort of give everybody in van Halen some breathing room and give roth maybe a chance to blow off some of his own you know creative frustrations about the way things had gone where maybe his musical taste maybe had been sidelined a little bit on 1984. Roth was kind of notoriously not a huge fan of the keyboard stuff as well. And so, but what ended up happening was that Crazy From The Heat became this huge, huge smash. And so instead of it giving them breathing room and, and giving Dave a chance to, to uh, work out some of his creative impulses, it sort of became a friction point within in Van Halen. The way he tells it, he said, he said, I just didn't see that coming. I, you know, I saw it as a win-win. It keeps Van Halen in the public eye for a few months. No one has to do anything. Dave can sort of have his moment in the sun, and then they go back and they make another record. But it actually was probably another contributing factor to those guys going the wrong way in terms of their relationship. Yeah, it was an interesting perspective from Ted to hear all that stuff where he, you know, he saw it as something that he thought was going to be helpful to Van Halen. In the end, he kind of realizes it didn't help at all. We're speaking with Greg Renoff, whose new book is Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life and Music. And, you know, 
I think we've recounted some things here, but I wonder if a lot of people don't know exactly what producers do. Some of it is is buttons and levels and all that, and some of it is quite different, you know, maybe some personal things. And we've recounted some of that stuff, the crazy stuff from, you know, Lowell George or, or uh, David Lee Roth. Well, Greg Renoff, your book on Ted Templeman, A Platinum Producer's Life in Music, does Ted very well, as well as it does for his pretty incredible body of work. I think anybody who reads this book, they'll know a lot of the music that Ted was involved with, and perhaps they didn't know his role in it. So um, great job. As always, it's a worthy follow-up to Van Halen Rising, and thank you very much for joining us. Hey, appreciate it. It was a great conversation. I love going so in-depth with you, and thanks to you. If you enjoyed this teaser, have a listen to the complete podcast episode on your favorite podcast provider. Please follow, subscribe, and share. And thanks for listening to All Music Podcasts, a member of Pantheon Media. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.